Now, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke 17? Luke 17, we're picking up our studies in Luke 17, and we come to verse 11, Luke 17 and verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise, And go your way, your faith has made you well. Amen. And we know God always blesses the reading of his own word. So this morning we're coming to one of the best known miracles of our Lord, the healing of the ten lepers. Now all these healing accounts of our Lord are not simply historical records of the miraculous activity of our Lord during his earthly ministry, but they reveal to us how God works in the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Spurgeon used to say, as a parable is a sermon to the ear, so a miracle is a sermon to the eye. And that's so often true. They are visual parables. And so often, just like the parables, they have a sting in the tail. And that's the case with this miracle that's before us. It reveals to us not only how God works in the lives of men and women and boys and girls, but there is a sting, a deadly sting, a punch to the conscience in the conclusion of the miracle. I want you to notice four things this morning. First of all, the suffering he encountered. We read in verse 11 that Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem and he passed along the border area between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was about to enter a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers. Now, leprosy was a living death. It's a disease that attacks the appendages, the fingers and the toes, which retreat into the body. It kills nerve endings so that bodies, the body's extremities are destroyed through undetected and unfelt pain. The flesh literally rots away. Dr. William Thompson, the 19th century travel writer, describes some of the lepers that he met when passing through what was then known as Palestine. He says, their hair falls from their head and eyebrows, their nails loosen, decay, and drop off, joint after joint of the fingers and toes shrivel up and are slowly consumed, their gums rot away, and their teeth disappear, the nose, the eyes, the tongue, and the roof of the mouth are all slowly consumed. One commentator describes these ten men as zombies, the living dead. And that's exactly what they were. They looked as if they had just climbed out of the the grave. Now, we're told today that the disease that we know as leprosy isn't itself contagious, and that's why missionaries and medical personnel can go and work among lepers. But the word in the Bible was used to cover a range of infectious skin diseases. And so the uh, the Bible prescribed very 
strict quarantine laws which covered these diseases. In Leviticus 13, we're told that a priest would examine the individual who was thought to have leprosy, and he would pronounce the man unclean. And we're told in verse 45, the person with such an infectious skin disease must wear torn clothes, must shave his head, must cover his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the disease, we're told he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. And you will notice there in verse 12, we're told as Jesus entered a village, these people were outside the village. Notice again in verse 12, they stood at a distance and lifted up their voices. They were forbidden to come close and could only shout and appeal to the passing Jesus. I want you for a moment just to think of the implications uh, of that. When, When it was suspected that they might have leprosy, these men were taken to the priest and they were declared unclean. From that day to this, to the day they met Jesus, they hadn't kissed their wives, they hadn't held their children, they hadn't greeted their friends, they hadn't sat at the table or lived in a home, they hadn't been to the market or attended their employment, they hadn't been to the synagogue or offered a sacrifice at the temple. They were socially, domestically and religiously excluded from all that they had known and loved. They lived outside the village. They uh, probably constructed a rough ramshackle shelter to protect them from the blistering heat of the Mediterranean sun. They were dependent on the citizens of that village to leave out little food parcels uh, that they could retrieve at night. When someone approached them, they would cover their faces and they would cry out, unclean, unclean, don't come near, stay away. It was a wretched pitiful, degrading condition. These men were defiled and cut off from everyone and everything that they knew and loved. Now, of course, the Old Testament quarantine regulations were there to protect people from infection and contamination. But there was also another reason for their existence. Like all these conditions in the Old Testament, Uh, leprosy was a picture of sin and defilement. They were illustrations of the sad effects of sin that defiles and separates. We know it's a picture of sin because of the remedy that was prescribed. So if someone felt that they were healed of their disease, they would go to the priest and the priest would inspect them And then they had to offer a sacrifice. Why did they have to offer a a sacrifice for a physical condition? Because because leprosy uh, signified something deeper than that, sin and defilement. You notice there in verse 14 and 17, they were cleansed. Not simply healed, but cleansed. There were spiritual implications to this disease. And the sacrifice for this condition was very... Interesting. So the priest would take uh, two live birds. He would hold one bird over a large pot of water. He would then execute it. And he would pour the, the, the blood into the water. And then he would take a hyssop plant. And he would dip it in the blood and water mixture. And then he would sprinkle the leper seven times and pronounce him clean. And then he would take the live bird and he would plunge the live bird 
below the blood and the water, and then he would release it into the open field, symbolizing the cleansing and the, the freedom that the leper had from his disease. Now, we know, like all these Old Testament sacrifices, that that picture pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would cleanse us from all sin. But what I want you to get at the, just at the moment is that to the Jews, leprosy was a picture of sin and defilement. And these wretched men in their terrible condition are pictures, illustrations of us in our sin. Just like these men. We have been excluded from the presence of God. They weren't allowed to go to the synagogue. They weren't allowed to offer a sacrifice at the, the, the temple. We're separated from him. And until that condition has been uh, remedied, that's where we remain excluded and cut off from God. Now, in verse 13, we find these men crying out for mercy. They lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And the reason they called for mercy is because they were aware of their desperate condition. And we will not call for mercy until we become sinfully aware, until we understand our true condition before God. Do you see your sin? Do you feel your sin? Have you faced up to sin? Do you recognize sin in yourself? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you agree with that statement that you have sinned? This is serious because you will never cry for mercy until you feel your need of mercy. And you will never feel your need for mercy until you understand your true condition before God. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Him writer says, Throw light into the darkened cells where passion reigns within. Quicken my conscience till it feels the loathsomeness of sin. Only Jesus can remedy our sinful condition, but we must first acknowledge that sinful condition. You know, in these um, addiction groups, the first step on the road to recovery is to acknowledge your condition, your position. Uh, I am Joe Bloggs, and I am an alcoholic. I am John Smith, and I am a gambler. I am Stephen Curry, and I am a sinner. Are you prepared to admit that these ten men, in all their shame and suffering and seclusion are pictures of you and I in our sin, the suffering he encountered. The second thing I want you to notice is the healing he encountered. Jesus healed these ten men, and he healed them completely, but what I want you to notice is how he healed them. When the ten call out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, uh, have uh, mercy on us, that's significant because leprosy affects the vocal cords. And uh, it's very painful to cry out in a loud voice with leprosy. But these men, so aware of their condition, push themselves through the pain barrier and cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, what I want you to notice is how Jesus 
uh, deals with them. He doesn't approach them. He doesn't touch them as he did with the leper in, in Luke 5. Rather, he says to them in verse 14, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were healed. Now, what a strange thing Jesus told them to do. He doesn't pronounce healing. He doesn't uh, prescribe medicine. He simply says, go show yourselves to the priest. Now, this is a reference back to the Old Testament law. Again, in Leviticus 14, if you thought you were cured of your leprosy, you would go to the priest and he would examine you. And if you were clear of leprosy, he would issue a bill of good health, a certificate of of good health. And uh, that certificate of good health was your admission back to your family, back to society, back to your community. It's a kind of opposite to a doctor's sick line. We go to a doctor's sick line, uh, to the doctor to get a sick line to be excused from society. But this, uh, the leper went to the priest to get a certificate to be included back into society. How do you think? Think for a moment what Jesus was telling these ten men to do. Go to the priest. Go to the priest. You only go to the priest when you're cured. You only go to the priest when you're free from your disease. My sores are still weeping. My uh, wounds are still oozing. How foolish it's going to appear if I arrive at the priest's door still full of the disease. How ridiculous. Go to the priest. But these men didn't question, they didn't reason, they didn't hesitate. They started out on their journey. Jesus had given them one simple command. And in obedience to that command, they set out to the person who could declare them clean. In other words, they went out in faith. They took the command of Jesus They appropriated the command of Jesus. They believed the command of Jesus. And as they went, they were cleansed. As they took those steps, a current of health and vitality flowed through their bodies. The stubs grew into fingers and toes. Their hair grew, their nose and mouth and the ears were miraculously replaced. And the flesh became as fresh as that of a little child must have seemed like a new beginning, a new start, a new birth. The sad and terrible effects of their disease disappeared with every step they took. As they went, they were healed. And I suppose with every step, faith and confidence grew. And as the healing progressed, I I would think they ended up running as strength flowed through their bodies. But the point is this, and I I want you to get this. It's only when they exercised faith and acted in response to the command of Jesus that they were cleansed. And I suppose the first step was the hardest step to take. But when they took uh, that step and then another step uh, and the healing was experienced, the subsequent steps became easier. But every step was a step of faith. Now the lesson for us is surely obvious. If leprosy in the Old Testament is a picture of sin and defilement, and the way to deal with sin and defilement is through faith. Faith is the remedy to that sin. 
It's when we exercise faith. It's when we believe that you experience the cleansing of God. It's not enough to know your sin. It's not enough to feel your sin. It's not enough to weep over your sin. You must respond in faith to Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Remember Paul's answer to the question of the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So you must believe the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that the second person of the Trinity enfleshed himself and came into our world and died upon the cross to pay the penalty for sin that we might be cleansed, that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to our God? don't want to push this um, imagery too far, but when you think of these These ten men, they were heading to the priest who was going to, if they were cleansed, offer a sacrifice on their behalf. That they moved towards the place of sacrifice. And it's by trusting in Jesus and the sacrifice that he has made that we experience the forgiveness of God. Do you believe? That's the question. Are you prepared to put your trust in Jesus? I think the first step is the hardest step. It's the hardest step. But it's the vital step that you must respond in faith to the offer of the gospel and you must put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe? Will you believe? Why won't you believe? It's by believing in Jesus that we know the cleansing that comes from God. The suffering he encountered, the healing that he extended. The third thing I want you to notice is the sin that he exposed in verses 15 to 18. As they were on the way to the priest's house, and when the process of healing was completed, there arose in one and only one a cord of gratitude, and he was determined that he would return and give thanks to the source of his deliverance. But he was in a minority of one. And he was the one that you would least expect to return and thank Jesus. He was a Samaritan. Remember, the Samaritans were the distant cousins of the Jews. Uh, But the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans because they had diluted and perverted the pure worship of Jehovah. But this stranger, this alien, this foreigner who was outside the Jewish fold, and him arises a cord of gratitude, and he is compelled to return and thank the source of his deliverance. The others hurry on to the temple to see the priest, which was some distance away. Now, in a way, that's quite understandable. Maybe for years, as I've said, they hadn't held their wives or kissed their children. They'd been blighted by this terrible disease. For years, they hadn't attended a place of worship. And all that filled their minds, possessed their minds, was this certificate, this uh, certificate that would give them access back to their families, back to society, back to their community. And in their excitement and enthusiasm, they run on and they forget the one who delivered them. Only one sees his way to return and give thanks to Jesus, and he's an outcast. He's an alien. 
He's a foreigner. All ten prayed, but only one praised. All ten received, but only one returned. All ten gained, but only one glorified. And even our Lord himself seems a bit surprised, if not disappointed, by that ingratitude. Were there not ten cleansed, he says in verse 17, where are the nine? Where are they, he asks. They should be here, giving thanks for the blessing that they have received. His prayer is the beggar asking. Praise is the beggar thanking. And surely it's not unreasonable for our Lord to expect thanks from those that he had blessed. And are we not the same when it comes to salvation? How can we feel to say thank you, to neglect the worship of God when he has done so much for us? There's an older lady at one time came to Spurgeon and uh, wanting to be a Christian, wanting to know the way of salvation. And after pointing that out to her, he wanted her to count the cost. And he said, you know, you have to worship the Lord with all of your life. You have to tend the place of worship. And she says, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if he saves me, he will never hear the end of it. He will never hear the end of it. At times we're so like the nine, aren't we? We have so much to thank him for, but we forget so quickly and so easily all that he has done for us. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And that's our problem. We forget so easily. We come to church. We sing these songs. But there's not one shred of true thanks in our hearts to the Lord who has saved us and delivered us. It's mechanical. It's routine. It's perfunctory. We don't from one week to the next. Thank God for all that he has done for us. Now that thanklessness is sinfulness. To fail to thank God for all his benefits is sinful. Paul describing the condition of the human race in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 says, They neither glorify God nor give thanks to him. And one of the marks of ungodliness, Paul says, in 2 Timothy 3, is um, ungratefulness. To feel to thank, to feel to worship, to feel to praise is sin, as sin against the great God of heaven. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The suffering that he encountered, the healing that he extended, the sin that he exposed. The last thing I want you to notice is the reason that he explained. As I said at the beginning, this miracle just like so many of the parables, has a sting in the tail. And uh, I just want you to notice that these men were stubborn in their thanklessness. I can't imagine for a moment that this Samaritan, without, of his own volition and without discussion, decided to return to Jesus himself and give thanks to God. I imagine he spoke to the other nine, and he sought them to return with him. But stubbornly, selfishly, and sinfully, they refused to return and give thanks to Jesus. And that thanklessness is the mark of an unregenerate heart. Now, that comes out in the passage. It's the sting in the tail, but it's lost in most of our translations because it doesn't fit neatly into the parallel between the Christian coming to faith and the necessity of the Christian giving thanks. 
The punchline there is in verse 19. Rise and go on your way. Your faith, says the ESV, has made you well. The authorized version says your faith has made you whole. Literally, that should read, your faith has saved you. Now, that word saved is the normal word for salvation. Our translators obscure what Jesus actually said. His faith had not simply healed him. His faith had saved him. All ten received healing, but only one received salvation. Now, all ten exercised faith. They set out in obedience to the Lord's command, as we have noticed, but only one exercised saving faith. And it's a a remarkable faith. Because he believed in Jesus as God. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Was no one found to return and give praise to God? Except this foreigner. Do you see that? Well, who did he return to? He returned to Jesus. But but Jesus says no one uh, thought it necessary to return and give thanks to God. That this leper believes in Jesus as God. He sees his divinity. That's the greatness of his faith. He worshiped Jesus as God. And that's where the parallel in the miracle breaks down. Because only one experienced salvation. Because only one exercised true saving faith. Now do you see what Jesus is saying? The reason this man gave thanks was because he was truly saved. The reason the others neglected thanks was because they were not truly saved. True worship and true praise springs from a regenerate heart, a heart that has been made alive by the Spirit of God and has exercised saving faith. And let me apply this. Are you a thankless person? When you worship, do you truly worship? When you praise, do you truly praise? If you struggle with praise, struggle with worship, could it be, could it be that not simply you've forgotten all his benefits, but that you haven't true faith in your heart? I only ask the question because that's what Jesus is saying and that's the sting in the tail. True worship springs from a regenerate heart. A saved man can do nothing but worship. I'm not talking about the way we worship. I'm talking about the way we give thanks. I remember Jeff Thomas telling me that he had Professor John Murray over from Westminster Theological Seminary preaching in his, his, his pulpit. And uh, Professor Murray uh, only sang psalms. They were an exclusive psalm. He was from an exclusive psalm singing congregation. So Jeff, in um, appreciation of him and for his benefit, picked four psalms. And they didn't have any music out of appreciation for him in that particular moment. And... uh, Jeff says, as he watched Professor Murray in the front row of the church before he came up to preach, he says, his eyes were closed and streams of tears were pouring from his eyes. 
That's true worship. Jeff Thomas says, uh, in true worship, men have little thought of the means of worship. Their thoughts are upon God. Do you worship? Do you worship with all of your heart? This is a test of authentic uh, salvation. Peter tells us to make our calling and election sure. This is one of the tests. Are we a thankful people? Do we really understand and appreciate all that God has done for us in the gospel? Do our hearts soar as we sing and exalt the great name of our God? Amen.